Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now beginning chapter 21 of the book of John. Our context is this. Jesus has already appeared to his disciples on Resurrection Sunday night. He's also done it the next day, and and, and the disciples have gone to Galilee as instructed, and they are fishing up there around the Sea of Galilee. And so the story picks up here in John 21. Jesus appears to seven of the disciples, not all 12. And that is the entire book of the entire chapter of John 21. We don't have enough time to take up all 25 verses, so we'll just do the first 14. There are no parallel passages. So we start with John 21, verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now they fish at night. That's a typical time for fishing back then. Nighttime was favored by fishermen in ancient times, as the NIV Study Bible says, and Aristotle even mentions that nighttime fishing is the best. So that was the custom. They went out at night, tried to catch some fish. Now, who were these seven disciples? There are several lists of disciples. I think it's about three of them, a three full list with all the 12. And people debate about some of the names because they use different names for the same people, most probably. Well, we know Thomas, that's, that's our old famous doubting Thomas, called twin. Thomas Didymus, Didymus is the Greek for twin. Then we got Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee. He's probably Bartholomew. Simon Peter we know, of course. Zebedee's sons, that includes John, the son of Zebedee, who's writing our gospel here. James and John, the son of Zebedee, the two famous disciples. And two others of his disciples were together. Some say these two disciples were Andrew and Philip because they were both from Bethsaida, which is just north and east of the Sea of Galilee, and they are now up at the Sea of Galilee. That's a logical speculation. We don't know. But if it's true, then that means there were four disciples missing. James the Less, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Thaddeus, also known as Jude, the son of James, and then Matthew, the author of, who's also known as Levi, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. I can't help but wonder why they weren't there, but maybe it's just circumstances, you know, they just weren't there at the time. Notice that Zebedee's sons are kind of not really mentioned by name. That could be because of the modesty of, from John, because he wrote this book. He didn't want to call attention to himself. Now, notice they're up at the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. They're going back to fishing. Why? Well, all their support had dried up. Remember those women that had supported the disciples as they went all over Israel for the, for three and a half years or so, preaching the gospel? Well, that money's gone now, and, they're going, and they weren't rich people. They go back. They had to make a living. So they were going back to their occupation of fishing. He didn't have anything else to do. Now, verse 1 says, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples. Now, that word again means that he's appeared to the disciples earlier. I'm going to count about 10 times, 9 or 10, depending on how you count. Well, we have this appearance here at the Sea of Galilee. That's number one. Then he appeared those two Sunday nights, Resurrection Sunday night, and the next Sunday night he appeared to all the disciples. That's three, number two and number three. He appeared to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. That's four. Then he appeared to all the other women at once. That's five. Then he appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's six. And then he made individual appearances to Saint to Peter. 
That's 7. That's in Luke 24, 34. The assembled disciples told the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Emmaus who had showed up resurrection Sunday night, and they said, hey, we've, the Lord has appeared to Peter. And, and Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 also. So that's 7. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 7 mentions that Jesus appeared to James, the Lord's brother, once. So that's 8. Now we have also in Matthew 28, there were disciples assembled on, on a hill in Galilee where Jesus gave them the Great Commission. That's 9. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Jesus appeared to 500. Well, that might be the same appearance on the hill at that Galilee, if it was a separate appearance, that's 10. At any rate, this just goes to show that Jesus wasted no time to appear to people after his resurrection so that they could have proof, physical proof, of this very hard thing to believe, that somebody's risen from the dead. All these people knew they could easily, have, <laughs> nobody could easily contradict their testimony. They said, look, I saw him personally, don't tell me. And they were everywhere, all these disciples, all these witnesses were everywhere testifying to the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. And I suspect that if liberals would look at the evidence, they might be a little less skeptical. All right, let's go back to the disciples. They went fishing that night. They didn't catch anything. Verse 4, John 21, When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore. However, the disciples did not know it was Jesus. We're going to find out in a little bit that the boat was 100 yards, 200 cubits, 100 yards from the shore. And so this will explain why the disciples in the boat didn't recognize Jesus on the shore. First of all, there's not much light at daybreak. The sun just comes over the horizon. You can't see too well. And you might say, well, they, they, they talk to each other because in the next verse, Jesus says this, Men, you don't have any fish, do you? So how'd they hear? Well, sound carries a long way over water, a lot better than sight does. So they heard this voice, but they didn't know who they were talking about. Now, some people speculate, well, the reason they didn't recognize Jesus is because Jesus had assumed another form. I don't believe that. And it could be, as a factor, adding to this situation where they didn't recognize him was they weren't expecting to meet him. I don't know if that's true either, because, after all, they've been told to meet Jesus at Galilee. They've been told. To show this, that they had been told earlier, let's consider Matthew 28, verse 7. This is the angel of the tomb speaking to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. This angel says this, Go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So the angels had told Mary and the other Mary, and of course they went and told the apostles, Head on out to Galilee. I'm sure they did. doesn't say they did, but we can assume they did. And there's also the parallel account in Mark 16:7. the same thing, tells the same story. We have another account in Matthew 28:16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. So apparently in these Sunday night meetings, Resurrection Sunday night and the, and the eight days later Sunday night meeting, Jesus had told them, meet me in Galilee. So they were up there. They were probably expecting to meet him at some time. So I don't think that's a good reason to say why they didn't recognize Jesus as he was on the shore while they were in the boat a hundred yards away. It was daylight. You can't see that far. Now, this idea of not knowing Jesus when he is seen, this is something that's always kind of puzzled me. We know that Mary Magdalene did not recognize him immediately when Jesus appeared to her at the tomb. This is when he appeared to her privately. It's probably because she was overcome with grief. It's hard to believe someone has been risen from the dead, and it's obvious from the accounts that she was just grief-stricken, just sobbing and wailing. That's not hard to believe that she didn't recognize him. 
How about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Well, I just speculate the reason they didn't know him because they didn't know Jesus personally before their encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They knew his ministry, they knew talk about him, but they it's never said anywhere that they actually knew Jesus personally. So I think that's how I handle that one. How about Doubting Thomas on the eight days after Sunday night meeting, eight days after the Resurrection Sunday, the, the second Sunday night? Why did he doubt? Well, he had so much doubt he was predisposed not to believe. Predisposed predisposition creating a mental framework can really mess with your mind. I got a good story here. I heard a story. In fact, I heard it from the horse's mouth. I heard I was listening to the son of an American ambassador ambassador to Beijing, to China, and he was there and this son spoke perfect Chinese, Mandarin Chinese. And the reason I know that is because I had a Chinese student with me, an ex-student, and she listened and she says, "Oh, Dr. Trotter, this man has perfect Chinese, perfect Chinese. Well, this man with perfect Chinese was in an alleyway in a street talking to a street vendor, vendor trying to buy some mandarin oranges. And I've done that a million times living in China. I've gone up to uh, vendors and said, I want two, I want one gene, I want one, uh, one bag of mandarin oranges. Done that a million times, no problem. Well, well, this this ambassador's son with perfect Chinese goes to the vendor and says, I want two Mandarin oranges, or whatever he said. And the woman looked at him and says, in, in Mandarin, she says, I don't speak English. And the ambassador's son replied, in perfect Mandarin Chinese, I want two bags of Mandarin oranges, or whatever he asked her. And she replied again, I don't speak English. And the ambassador's son said the third time, I'm not speaking English. I'm speaking Mandarin Chinese to you. I want two bags of Mandarin oranges. Finally, the lady said, oh, 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 because her mind was so predisposed. She saw that white American face. She figured, well, he's got, he can't speak Chinese. No, no, no foreigner over here in this country can speak Chinese. I've had that happen to me, too, sometimes, not quite to that degree, because my Chinese is pathetic compared to perfect Mandarin Chinese. But it's amazing. You start, and they, and, and talking, and I know I said, talked in Chinese well enough for somebody to understand, and they look at you with a blank face. Why? Mindset. If you're predisposed to believe something, you're not going to believe facts to the contrary until they're hammered into your head. And I suspect that Doubting Thomas was so predisposed to not believe that Jesus is written from the dead by his words, well, you can deduce that, that when he actually saw Jesus, he didn't believe him. And Jesus kind of had to hammer it in. Hey, Thomas, you're looking at me. I mean, Thomas might have even thought he was looking at a lookalike. Yeah, you look like Jesus, but you're not Jesus because Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So I don't really have too much problem with this problem of people not recognizing Jesus when he showed up. All right, let's go to John 21, verses 5 through 6. Men, Jesus called to them. Jesus is on the shore calling to the men in the boat. Men, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he, Jesus, told them, and you'll find some. So they did, the disciples did that, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Now, Jesus addresses them as men. This is Holman Christian Study Bible Translation. The NIV has friends. You don't have any fish, do you? The KGV has children. You don't have any fish, do you? Obviously, whatever Greek word that's there, it's not, it's not so easy to translate. But at any rate, some people, Gill and Clark say the KGV translation shows tenderness and affection. So we, there might be a little bit of that connotation in there. Now, why does he tell them he wants them to catch fish? Well, there's two reasons. One is that fish is meant to be a symbol for all the souls that were going to be one in their ministry. As Adam Clark says, 
I think that's exactly right. This was a didactic miracle, a, a teaching miracle, an object lesson miracle. Also, I believe it was to remind the disciples of when he first called them and said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. When that happened at the very three and a half years earlier, at the very beginning of the ministry, the same thing happened. Let's read about that in Matthew 4, verses 18 and 19. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. And then we read in Luke 5, 6, when they did this, when they threw the net into the sea, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So Jesus is doing the same miracle that he did before with the same object. I want to make you fishers of men. I want to remind you guys, this is why I called you, so that you can fish for men. Now, this was probably also the reason that Peter knew it was Jesus in the next verse when he says, um, when John said, it's the Lord, why why John actually said, it's the Lord to, to Peter, <laughs> it's because the, the miracle was so reminiscent of the earlier miracle that had happened at the beginning of the Galilean ministry when Jesus called his 12 apostles for the first time. Notice that the apostles obeyed. When you obey Jesus, good things happen. They obeyed. Up comes a large number of fish, which they needed, by the way, because of their occupation. They didn't have any money anymore. We go to verse 7. Therefore the disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John, he never calls himself by his own name for modesty's sake. He said that Jesus loved because Jesus especially loved John. John, Jesus, uh, John, I'm sorry, had his, laid his head on Jesus' breast and so forth at the Last Supper. He was especially close to Jesus. Therefore the disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. He recognized those fish. He recognized, he knew what was going on. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer garment around him, for he was stripped and plunged into the sea. Now, why did he do that? Why that little detail? Why did he put his garment around him, his outer garment? Well, NIV Study Bible has an interesting take on that. They say it was, it, they admit that it's curious that Peter would put his garment on before jumping in the water because he's got to swim 100 yards. And put an outer garment on, that makes it harder to swim. Well, they speculate that the Jews regarded a greeting as a religious act. Eastern hospitality and all that. And you got to be clothed. You just don't go walking up to somebody in your underwear. <laughs> well, I guess that makes sense. So uh, Peter might have been uh, doing that. John Gill thinks that Peter was entirely naked and therefore he had to put something on. He was butt naked. I don't believe that. I believe he was just stripped down to his skivvies, to his underwear. But at any rate, it wasn't respectful. Remember now, they, they're starting to treat Jesus very respectfully now since they know he's resurrected from the dead and he's now the official resurrected son of God. Remember when Thomas had the eight days Sunday meeting after Resurrection Sunday? What did Thomas say to Jesus? My Lord and my God. So they're treating him with a lot of respect. So that might make sense. That's why he put it on. And at any rate, it made it harder for him to swim. Adam Clark says it wasn't all that much harder because the water was shallow because they were only 100 yards from the shore. 200 cubits, 100 yards. I don't know. I couldn't swim 100 yards very well with a garment stripped to my underwear or with a garment on. But I mean, if I had to, I could. And and also you've got to realize that he's probably a good swimmer, being grown up around water all his life. And also he was excited because he's getting to see the resurrected Jesus again. The adrenaline was pumping. So he swims to shore. Notice how he, the rest of the disciples brought the boat back. Peter dives in the water. He was always the impetuous, 
impetuous one. He's famous for this. Remember, he was the one that said, hey, Lord, we on the Sea of Galilee. There's a big storm here. If it's you, let me come out and walk on the water to you. He didn't finish the act. Of course, he started sinking, but at least he got out. He was impetuous. He didn't, he didn't wait around. I'll never deny you, Lord. Oh, then he denies the Lord. You know, that's just his personality. John 21, 8 through 10. But since they were not far from land, that's they, the disciples in the boat, were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat. That's other disciples besides Peter who was swimming. They came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. Now they're dragging the net because they couldn't pull it up in the boat. It was too heavy. So they just dragged the net, got it on the shore, and later we'll see Peter helped them haul the fish in. Now, where did Jesus get his fish? Well, he could have probably just caught them there on the shore, or he could have miraculously directed the fish to <laughs> head to where he was. You know, he was God. He did that sort of thing. So that, however he got him, it doesn't really matter. Clark says the whole meal was miraculously prepared by Christ's bread. No, I don't think so. He probably carried some bread with him. He's, he, he, you know, he's supernatural, but he's also natural. He's still living in this world as a man. At any rate, why did he prepare them a meal of fish and bread? Why would he prepare them a meal of fish and bread? And, and maybe that's not so surprising, but why would John take the time to record it? Some minor detail. What do we have for breakfast today? Well, it's because the fish and the bread were designed to remind the disciples of the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 when they had that great ministry going back there in the Galilean ministry. Which, by the way, those feedings took place in the wilderness around Bethsaida, which is probably very near to where they are now. They're probably near Capernaum somewhere, since that's where they were from. That's where they had lived. They originally were from Bethsaida. But anyway, they were in the same general, within walking distance of where those miracles had taken place, and Jesus is trying to remind them of that. Jameson Fawcett and Brown said, yeah, now they've got a double supply. Jesus' fish and the disciples' fish. Well, I don't know. That's, they didn't need 153 fish. The next verse tells us that's how many they had, 153 big fish. That's more fish than they needed to eat. So I don't think it has to do about supply. I think it has to do with object lesson. I'm going to remind you, I fed you in the wilderness. This is me, John twenty-one eleven. So Simon Peter got up and hauled the net ashore. He helped the other disciples who dragged the net onto the shore, and they couldn't get it over the gunnels of the boat, so they just pulled it up on the beach where they didn't have that vertical height to deal with, and so it was easier. They hauled the net ashore, and the net was full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Now, 153, why count the fish? Why did they count them? Well, this is my speculation. It's probably because they were so impressed by the miracle. They wanted to tell people how big the miracle it was. Isn't it natural for fishermen to talk about how many fish they caught? Just like it's natural for deer hunters to count the points on a deer's antlers? Or how big that buck was? I mean, that's just, you know, that's the way fishermen and and, uh, and other outdoorsmen, that's what they do. They talk about their manly exploits. Here, of course, they're probably talking about can you believe this? Jesus said to throw the net in on the other side of the boat, and we got 153 big ones. That's why they put the detail in there. Again, it's evidentiary. John is, is a book, a gospel written with the point of convincing people to believe by miracles, by signs, and this was another one. Now, I don't know why he put in the detail there were so many fish the net was not torn. I can't answer that, but the net was not torn like it was in Luke. At the beginning of the ministry, John 21, 12 through 14, Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. 
This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. First time being resurrection Sunday night in the home of the disciples in Jerusalem. Second time being eight days after that on the next Sunday night. And this is the third time he appeared to the disciples collected together. He's not talking about individual appearances to James and Peter and Mary Magdalene and the other women. He's talking about to the collected disciples. And, and actually, it was just seven of them. Four of them weren't there. Of course, Judas was dead, but the other and the other four were not there. So this is the third time Jesus appeared again. John's making a point. Hey, Jesus resurrected. He appeared to the disciples. You don't believe in the resurrection? Go talk to these people. They'll tell you. There was so much corroborating evidence everywhere in Israel. And that's why the Pharisees were not able to put out this pernicious rumor that this imposter, this fake Messiah had risen from the dead. They couldn't stop the rumor because it wasn't a rumor. It was the truth. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Let me read it. Let me report to you what Adam Clark said, that a proper awe of the deity of Christ had settled upon them ever since the confession of Thomas. My Lord and my God, that was the eight day after Sunday night meeting. My Lord and my God, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say this, quote, implying that they would have liked him just to say, it is I. But having such convincing evidence, they were afraid of being upbraided for their unbelief and hardness of heart if they ventured to put the question. In other words, they wanted a little bit of assurance. Jesus, please tell us that you're, that, that's really you. But they had so much evidence it would have been embarrassing to ask that question, so they didn't dare to ask it. But they would have liked a little bit more, but you know, it doesn't matter. They had all the evidence they needed. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with the first 14 verses in John 21. We will finish John chapter 21 and the book of John in our next audio, and we will continue with the story of Jesus at the Sea of Galilee with the seven disciples, and we will talk about that famous encounter where Jesus asked Simon Peter three times, Do you love me? This verse, which is used so many times erroneously to say that there's a difference between agape love and phileo love, though there is not. But we'll get into that in the next audio. I hope you tune in for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs> 